Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, if I haven't met you or maybe you're joining us online and you don't know who I am, I'm Pastor Jonathan. And, uh, and I will be Pastor Jonathan, associate pastor here for one more week. And, uh, and this, yes, no, he says, no. Or maybe he said, yes, I'm not sure which, but, but um, I just wanted to say, this is going to be my last sermon I'm going to preach here uh, as an associate pastor. Who knows what the Lord has in store in the future? Maybe I'll come back and preach again sometime with you, visit with you. No, I'm not going to do that. But, um, but, but just wanted to, uh, to say briefly for a moment, just what a privilege it's been to serve you all uh, and an honor uh, to serve here for the last three and a half years. And uh, it has been a true joy, and uh, my family and I are grateful and thankful, and uh, we're going to miss you guys. And uh, so uh, I preach today uh, knowing that there's a sense of, of goodbye in this, but also a sense in uh, God sending us out into his kingdom to do his work, uh, both me and you. And uh, so although it may feel like goodbye, it's just sort of a see you later, right? Because we're going to see each other in eternity as well. And I'm sure before then, uh, and I'm looking forward to next week, just a little kind of uh, maybe a plug. Um, I'm going to be leading the music next week with my wife, and I have a full band uh, coming for this service. So if you want to have a full band, come to the first service. Outside, I don't know, it might just be me freezing, but, but anyway, but we, we, I want to turn our attention now uh, to God's word. Now, we are here to worship him uh, and to be reminded of his grace to us. Uh, His word is always timely and relevant, and it's been given to us by God for our good. And uh, I was struck by some of the timeliness of of this passage in light of some current events going on. Uh, We're going to read in Esther 8, and I'm I'm just going to read right now the last three verses of the chapter. Esther 8, verses 15, 16, and 17, as we uh, begin considering... God's word for us today. So if you have turned there, I think the page number, there you go, 414. I don't know if the end of the chapter is on the next page or not, but there it is. So this is God's word for us. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear 
of the Jews had fallen on them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is true. Lord, we do not need to doubt. We do not need to be skeptical. And yet, Father, sometimes we do doubt and sometimes we are skeptical. And so we pray today by your spirit, would you crush our doubts, remove our skepticisms, Would you and your grace be bigger and mightier and more beautiful than anything else, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, they say we are living in unprecedented times. This morning, I did a quick Google search of the phrase unprecedented times. And here's a few headlines, news headlines that I found. These are literally the top five or so. I'm just going to read four of them. One, navigating the market during these unprecedented times. Health care heroes in unprecedented times. Amy Coney Barrett joins the Supreme Court in unprecedented times. My favorite, Halloween costume ideas for unprecedented times. They were kind of goofy, by the way. What are we really saying when we use this phrase, unprecedented times? We've never seen anything like this before. No one could have seen this coming. These events are unforeseen. No one could have predicted this. For how many of us have these so-called unprecedented times affected the way we look at life, our mood, our energy levels, our motivation to carry on? You see, this idea, this unprecedented times in which we're living has become for many a source of despair a source of depression, division, and destruction. I ask you this morning, how have these so-called unprecedented times affected your gladness and joy, your peace and life? See, I wonder if the Jews thought they were living in unprecedented times as well. They were carried off into exile, into the Babylonian Empire, If they were paying attention, they would have seen that it was coming because the prophets told them it was coming. But yet, how many were surprised by it? How many were surprised when they watched the nation of Persia expand while their own kingdom diminished? And I wonder how many thought they were living in unprecedented times when Haman's edict to kill and destroy all of the Jews in Persia from India to Ethiopia went out. And they were to be annihilated in less than a year. You see, I wonder if they thought they were living in unprecedented times. And then we come to this passage today, and all of a sudden, if you were to jump into Esther and you've been gone for a few weeks, you're kind of going, what has happened? Right? Here's Mordecai, the hated Mordecai, the enemy of Haman, and he walks out. From the presence of the king, wearing royal robes, with a crown upon his head. I wonder if they thought, this is really unprecedented. 
You may remember it wasn't that long ago that Mordecai was wearing sackcloth and ashes. And the people of Susa were weeping and fasting and bearing shame and dishonor. Go to chapter 4 for that. And yet today, Mordecai is wearing royal robes and a crown and the Jews have light and gladness and joy and honor. You may remember that the last time the king's number two man came out, Haman, he was carrying an edict that said wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. That's Esther 4.3. And yet today, the king's number two man comes out carrying a decree that brings gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday What in the world is going on in these unprecedented times? What accounts for such joy and honor and gladness at this point? There's a, a question that I want us to think about for a minute. Has something fundamentally changed in the worldview of the Jews? Now think about this. Has God's promise all of a sudden changed a little bit between chapter 4 and chapter 8? You see, apart from the fact that someone from their own tribe, if you will, is now carrying a new edict with positive implications for them, do they have anything more fundamental to hang their hopes on than that their man's in power? I mean, what would happen if Mordecai was displaced and another Haman-like ruler is put in place and another genocidal edict is written? You'll note that King Ahasuerus doesn't really care about the Jewish people. In fact, as we'll see in a minute, the only reason he allowed them to do this is because he found Esther to be pleasing. Would the Jews rejoice still if things went back to the way they were? Would the people of God still celebrate? I mean, think about it. Has God's plan for the Jewish people changed in four chapters? Did God wake up one day in chapter 8 and say, I guess I'll help out my people a bit more this week. My people fasted, they wept, they prayed, they did all these right religious things. Now I'll turn the ship around. I'll pour out my blessings. They've named it and claimed it, right? Now I'm going to show up. Is this what's going on? Doesn't the Bible say that God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore? Did the Jews have less reasons to rejoice four chapters ago than they do now? It's tempting, isn't it? It's tempting to only rejoice when things are going our way, isn't it? It's tempting to rejoice when our man wins. When our tribe or our team or our party has the power. You see, like the Jews, we too can be tempted to only rejoice when, when things seem to be going our way. And maybe we're even like those who are other than Jew. You notice what they're doing, right? They're declaring themselves Jews because they're afraid. We might be tempted to identify with those who are winners, with those who can give us what we want or what we think we need. We can even be tempted to idolize those who are in power, those who are in the tribe that seems to best represent what we want. You see, when a different power structure is in place that seems to offer something better, then we could be tempted just to jump to that, right? We're fickle like that. 
We can be tempted to hitch our wagon and our happiness to that person or tribe. And yet, those of you who are here today who call yourself Christian, who say, I follow Jesus, aren't we called to rejoice in the Lord always? Whether we're in so-called unprecedented or precedented times, whatever that means, regardless of who is in office, regardless of pandemics, regardless of economic downturns or upturns, don't we have abundant reasons to rejoice always? Let's look at a few reasons that we find in our passage today. If you will, look with, with me at Esther, verses, uh, Esther 8, verses 1 and 2. What are the reasons we have to rejoice? Verse 1, And on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king. For Esther had told what he was to her. That is that, this is my cousin. He raised me. And the king took off his ring, signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So what's happening here? Well, if you go back to chapter 7, you'll see what happens is uh, Esther reveals the plot of, of Haman, that Haman was setting out to kill Mordecai. Mordecai had just been honored by the king in chapter 6. It's sort of, there's some comedy here, right? Haman says, you know, the king says, hey, what would you do? How would you honor someone who's done all these great things? And Haman says, well, I would do this. I'd put a robe on him, give him a horse. I'd send him out and have people declare, here he comes. And, and the king says, all right, do that for Mordecai, right? And then you, you fast forward a little bit, and now uh, Esther reveals to the king, oh, by the way, Haman has, wants to kill all of my people. And the king is frustrated. He's angry, it says. And then Haman is hanged on the very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And on that same day, King Ahasuerus gives to Esther the house of Haman, meaning she, he, he set her over all of, of his property, all of his stuff, if you will. She inherited it all and his power. Esther says, Mordecai is my cousin. He raised me. And the king says, well, then he is going to be the man. He's my number two. And he gives his ring, signifying power and the ability to write laws and edicts. And he gives it to Mordecai and sets him up. And Esther says, you have the house of Haman now. You'll notice something that happens in this chapter. There's a, a shift in the main character, if you will. And I know we've said sort of the unspoken main character is God, but in terms of the, the, the main characters that we see on the pages, there's something interesting that happens here. In chapters one through seven, the name Jew, or reference to the Jew, happens 13 times, okay? Specifically the name Jew, 13 times in seven chapters. In this chapter, you can start counting 14 times. Jews, the enemy of the Jews, the people of the Jews. It, it's 14 times. I think the author wants to shift our attention to the people of God and how is God relating to them? How has God and how is he being faithful to his promises to them? You think for a minute, what else explains what's happening here other than the fact that God is at work 
that these times are not unprecedented. They are God-ordained. And what we see, this reason number one to rejoice is that God rules over all kingdoms. He rules over all kingdoms. That's the only way you can explain what's happening here. A new, uh, a new man's put in place. Esther's given the house. Power has shifted entirely. It's a great reversal. This is because God rules over all kingdoms. We see this in the Bible. God rules over the kingdom of man. Right? You may remember the story. It's a little bit chronologically speaking before this. Back in Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar, this great king, and he has this event where he's humbled and he's, he's made to act like an animal, a beast. In Daniel 5, 21, he was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. This is, this is the po- most powerful man in the world, by the way. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. God rules over the kingdoms of men. Romans 13 says it very similarly. There is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Friends, God rules over the kingdoms of men. That includes the governments of this nation. God rules over them regardless of who is in office. God rules over them. I'm not at all saying don't vote. Don't consider your options and weigh them. But I am saying remember that God rules over. And this ruling over is actually pointing to a better kingdom. You see, not only does God rule over the kingdoms of man, he rules over the kingdoms of the entire universe, and God has promised to give an everlasting kingdom to his people. Daniel 7, 27, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven, so that's the kingdoms of man, shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. To the people of God, because his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. That is Jesus. So, no matter who's in power, no matter who's in office, God rules. Whether or not your candidate wins on Tuesday, God is still ruling over all. And because of this, we have reason to rejoice. See, for the Jews and Esther, though, there's still a problem that they had. Power has shifted, but there's still a problem. And it leads to also another reason to rejoice. Look with me at verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. That's calling us back. Calling us back to chapter 3. Chapter 3 and chapter 8 are are almost parallel chapters. The language is almost exactly the same, in fact. Especially when you get down into the edict. And Haman's edict, of course, was to see the complete and utter destruction of all the Jews and all the provinces of Persia. 
from Ethiopia to India, 127 provinces. Verse 4, when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. Fascinating point here I want to I point out. Because you're going to read, if you read commentaries on this chapter, not one of them point out what just happened in verse 4. She went before the king a second time facing death if he did not extend his golden scepter. Not one commentator that I read points this out. But yet, why else is he extending the golden scepter other than to say, you are welcome into my presence. And if he didn't, same thing's true as was true in chapter four, you would be killed. A second time she goes before risking her life for the sake of her people. Esther rose and stood before the king, looking at verse five. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? You'll note the basis for her request has nothing to do with justice. That's because of who she was in the presence of. She was wise in this way, a little bit cunning. I think that was the phrase David, Pastor David Emke used, this cunning. She appealed to what he would find appealing. She said, if I'm pleasing to you, if you think I'm a, a pretty good wife and a good queen... She spoke his language. She didn't lie. She just appealed to the things that he cared about. He cared about aesthetics, if you will. He cared about how things appeared too. Well, it's not going to look good for me if my queen's people are destroyed and then my queen gets destroyed because of some law that I let right that I didn't even know was happening. He's going to look like a fool again. Have I found favor in your sight? Am I pleasing to you? And so then she makes the request. My people have been subjected to the judgment of destruction and death. Will you change the order? So here we see Esther, who's now risked her life twice on behalf of her people. She has now advocated for the Jews twice. This is another reason we have to rejoice, friends. God provides an advocate for his people. God provides an advocate for his people. God has provided an advocate. An advocate, you might think of this uh, to, to define advocate. It's someone who speaks up for and defends someone else. Maybe you're a social worker or a, or a case worker, or an adoption agency worker, or maybe you're a teacher and you speak up on behalf of your students uh, it's striking right now that there's less child abuse being reported because who are the number one reporters of that? School teachers. They were speaking up on behalf of their students. Those are advocates. These are advocates. And here she is advocating for the sake of her people who were facing destruction and facing death. And she goes into the presence of the king and says, can you look at me and find me pleasing in your sight and have mercy on them? Does this sound familiar? Does this sound like something somebody else has done on behalf of God's people? 
You see, there's an edict that we too are subject to. The theologians call it the covenant of works. It's this idea that if you sin against God in any way, you are owed the judgment of death and destruction. And we know, because the Bible tells us and our experience proves it, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the penalty for our sins, our rebellion, if you will, against our maker is death. We need an advocate. And thanks be to God that we have one. 1 John 2 verse 1 says, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 1 John uh, 2 verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. He's the one who bears the wrath. He bears the judgment He satisfies God's wrath. And interestingly, he's not a a one-time advocate who's, you know, one and done. In fact, Hebrews 7 says he still lives to make intercession. He's still advocating for you right now, follower. You see, God has provided an advocate for his people. Friends, I want to ask you this. Who or what are you resting your hopes and dreams in today? Is it in a political candidate? Is it in the stock market? Is it in a vaccine? What would it look like for you to embrace Jesus Christ and rest upon him as your advocate, as your savior, as your Lord, as your friend? How would it change the way you might respond to these so-called unprecedented times if you were to live as if Jesus Christ is in heaven right now interceding with the Father and pleading with the Most High King on your behalf. Right now, he's doing this. Coming back into Esther, we see that there's still this problem. There's still a problem. She's made her plea, and yet there's this decree. Look with me at verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, he gives a two-part answer. Part one, behold, I've given you, I've given Esther the house of Haman and they've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay a hand on the Jews. So come on, look what I've done for you. Part two, but you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's Ring For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So what we're learning here is a couple things. First of all, we learn that any edict written in the name of the king cannot be revoked. Now commentators are a little mixed on whether or not this is just something that he just brought up right now or if this is actually the way it was. But regardless, he's saying right now, you cannot revoke the edict to kill and destroy all of your people. Can't be done. That's what he's saying right now. But what he also says is that you can write something else in the name of the king with regard to the Jews. So he gives permission to write another edict. Friends, it's like this for us. The judgment, the edict of judgment against uh, people who have sinned against God does, 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 does not go away. It's still there. 
Look with me at verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time. I bet they were. In the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, so this is now about two to three months after the first edict was written. So just think for a minute. The Jews have been living for a couple months now, preparing for the fact that on the 12th month, they're going to be destroyed. And so the scribes are summoned. Looking back at verse 9. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. He wants to make sure they understand it. If you look back at chapter 3, this same exact language is used. Verse 10, And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. There it goes, it has authority. And then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. Now you'll notice if you look back at chapter 3, Haman didn't use swift horses. He just sent the couriers out. Mordecai, oh yeah, he's a smart guy. Get those swift horses out. He gets the race horses out and sends them out on it. Look with me at verse 11. Saying, now we hear what the edict is saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. And on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Now you'll note what the edict is. It's the right to bear arms and defend yourself. That's what it is. Pick up your swords, pick up your plows, pick up your spears, pick up whatever you can find and defend yourself from anyone who attacks you. And if you go back to chapter three and you're thinking, what's this whole women and children language? In chapter three, Haman's edict said, you can kill everyone, including women and children. And everyone is to do the killing. And so they're just saying, well, if children and and women are coming after you, you have to defend yourself. And you're allowed to do that. It's it's left in the air whether or not they did. In chapter 9, which will be next week, we'll see. I don't know. We'll see what Pastor Dan includes in there. But you, you will note that they do not actually plunder any goods. So they do not take the full extent of what they're, they're allowed to do. Look with me at verse 13. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. So not just the Jews. Everybody was to see this. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. And so the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in the Susa, uh, was issued in Susa the citadel. What do we see happening here? We see that there is, if you will, a counter edict going on. It's really just a second edict that allows for them to counter the first edict. This edict can be described, if you will, or summarized as an edict to defeat the enemies. They are allowed to defend themselves and to defeat their enemies who come against them. 
And if we want to zoom out a little bit, what do we see going on here? We see this, and this is another reason we have to rejoice. God always defeats the enemies of his people with an edict of grace. So you might want to tag that in. I don't think that's underlined there. But I want to add that in there. God always defeats the enemies of his people with an edict of grace. Now, we need to have a, we need to have a talk about who are our enemies, okay? Who are the enemies of God? Well, we... Probably, I'm sure even, even the children in here could say, well, Satan's an enemy of God. That's right. That's right, right? We learn about that, right? Satan's an enemy of God, right, boys? Yeah, yeah, I've seen some heads nod, right? That's right, all the way back to the garden, Genesis 3, Satan taking the form of a serpent comes and he, he whispers lies, twists the truth of God. Yeah, he's an enemy of God, that's right. We see that death is an enemy of God, 1 Corinthians 15 the last enemy to be destroyed is death. We also see that those who oppose Jesus through unbelief and unrepentance are called enemies of God. Matthew 10, Jesus speaks and he says, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. So anyone who loves something else more than Jesus, Jesus says, is an enemy. James 4 says, whoever wishes to be a friend uh, of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So those who are living in unbelief and unrepentance, you're an enemy of God. So let's remember our own history then, friends. You and me, prior to our faith in Christ, prior to regeneration, prior to conversion and trusting in Jesus, guess what? We were enemies of God. We too deserve the judgment of the first edict of destruction and death. And yet, thanks be to God that there is a second edict of grace. Romans 5 says it very well. Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, friends, we who call ourselves followers of Jesus, Christian, we have been made uh, uh, new. We are no longer called enemy. We are now called sons and daughters. Because of what Christ did in defeating the enemies, Christ himself became the enemy of God on the cross. He bore the wrath of God on the cross. The holy war, if you will, was waged against Christ on the cross, on behalf of us, his people. And he suffered and died on the cross, paying the penalty of sin, satisfying the wrath of God with his blood. And then he rose on the third day and he defeated the power of sin and death. 
And then he ascended to the throne in heaven 40 days later where he continues to subdue us to himself, where he continues to rule over all. He defends us and he restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. You see, God has defeated all the enemies of his people, including me and including you. He's defeated the enemy. Colossians 1, 21, and you who were once were alienated and hostile in mind, that's enemy language, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Friends, do you realize, do you realize that in Christ, the greatest enemy, sin and death, is defeated And that we who call ourselves Christian, follower of Jesus, you have been delivered from this edict of destruction and death through the edict of grace. So the final question I want to ask is, who have you hitched your wagon of happiness to? Striking the the language at the end of the, the chapter here, which we started with. Mordecai goes out from the presence of the king in royal robes and this, you know, blue and white robes and great golden crown and a, a robe of, of fine linen and, and, uh, and, he, and the, the city is shout, shouting. You know, in a, in a few days, probably more realistically in a few couple weeks, someone's candidate is going to come out of the polling place or the, the voting box, I mean, as the winner. He's going to be dressed in the royal robes of either blue or red. He's going to have the golden crown of the office that that he or she was running for. And some in the cities are going to shout and rejoice. And others in the cities may weep and mourn. I want to ask you, what are you going to do, Christian? See, our rejoicing is always going to be put to the test, friends. Whether it's through unprecedented times through a pandemic, through political seasons, through, through divisions and unrest, through economic hardship. Our rejoicing is always going to be put to the test. But friends, we still live in God-ordained times. I'm going to invite you to join me in, in referring to these times no longer as unprecedented, but as God-ordained, because that's what they are. We are living in God-ordained times. And because of this, we always have a reason to rejoice. God rules over all the kingdoms. God provides an advocate for his people, Jesus Christ. God defeats his enemies, including me, with an edict of grace. We might note finally that God also presents us. Just as Mordecai came out wearing these robes, God's going to present us one day. He's holy and blameless, wearing the robes of righteousness, dipped in the blood of Christ, Revelation 7. And on that day, it says in Revelation 7, there will be no more mourning, no more division, no more strife. Let's read it. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him. Let me back up. 
These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. That's believers. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, friends, we have a glorious hope that we are looking forward to, and this is it. Forget about the feasting that may happen on Tuesday, depending on whether or not your candidate wins. Let's look forward to the feasting in eternity with our shepherd and king who wipes away the tears from our eyes. Maybe this is what Paul means in Philippians 4 when he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, that's, that's what we long for is peace. Our hearts long for it. And we are thankful that through our advocate, Jesus, this longing can be fulfilled. Father, help us. Help us to rejoice in Christ. Lord, remind us that we don't need to hitch our wagon of happiness to this world. We can unhitch from this world and rest in Christ and rejoice in him, even in great trials. We love you, O Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.